And so this morning, to start out with, I actually wanted to read a verse from Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1, is a familiar verse, but it is a, it's a verse that, uh, and I think I will let Ralph look it up for me instead of me. It says, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And so we watched on Friday night, I think it was, the live stream of the Sight and Sounds production of The Life of David. And there is a, the, there's a song in there that I was going to reference, but I just forgot the, um, the Battle Belongs to the Lord was a theme at the beginning of David's life with the mighty men. He's training the mighty men. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I, I've been reminded of that in a lot of ways. I, I, you know, when I look at us here, um, and I think of each one of our circles outside of here, like we, we meet here on a Sunday morning. We see each other a few times during the week, dif- different ones of us, different times. But the circles that we're part of, each one of us is walking out something that God has called us to do. Or sometimes we are, like I'm, I'm thinking of myself in this instance, sometimes we're like Jonah um, and we're spending weeks not doing what we are pretty sure God wants us to do. And so we, we have these individual battles where we're either doing what we're supposed to do or we're not. And, uh, you know, this week we had another meeting talking about one of our film projects that I've been dreading this conversation for a while, and it was very encouraging afterward. And so you can be praying for the whole Lumberjack project that everything could come together and it could work. Um, It has been six years since I started exploring that project, a little over six years now. And so sometime last year, when things weren't just coming together the way I thought they should, I kind of despaired. And so I was really kind of just, you know, so Stacy, being my fellow producer, is like, hey, we need to set up another meeting. I'm like, I'd rather, I don't know, put aspartame in my tea. <laughs> um, I, I, was, I was just really not looking forward to it. And I just didn't want to. And so we kept talking back and forth. And so finally we had the meeting, we had the conversation. And so we actually have... By the end of this week, we should know whether the, the people that we're working with, if, if it's going to work or not. And so they're having to make a decision. We, we talked through a bunch of points. Now they're having to make a decision on whether or not we work together. So I would appreciate prayer for that. Um, just that, because that, that will actually impact us, which means it'll impact us as a fellowship, because there will be, there would be several weeks sometime next year that I would not be here. Um, and so it would, it would definitely impact us. So be praying for us on that one. But the, the confession side of it was, I kept being like, I don't know. And so on, when we finally had the meeting, we finally talked about it, this little part of me kind of woke up again and said, you know what? God gave this to me. I'm supposed to be doing this. And it felt good because I'm taking that ownership of that part instead of pushing it far off in the thing. And then I saw in David, in David, the, the play, I, I, you know, in the, the theater production, there's that time when at the begin, at the, in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle and he stays home. Well, that's what it feels like. That's what I felt like I was doing. It's like there's a season where we're supposed to be doing something and we stay home. So like there's the time when, when we're supposed to connect, go do something, and we, we don't do it. 
And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I feel that so much. And so when I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, it's great. So I'm feeling pretty good this morning. This week has been incredibly busy in so many ways. And, and I have to remember that if we keep walking, the Lord will keep blessing us. So I, I want to speak today on the firstborn. And when I looked at this three weeks ago and I was, and was going down all the different paths that we could go down, I felt that it was potentially an overwhelming thing. So I want to start with a disclaimer that I'm not covering every possible message that is in the firstborn passages here in Exodus. So we'll start with Exodus chapter 11. And we'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll skip over to Exodus chapter 12. So Exodus 11, verses 1 through 10. And now we're back at the moment where Pharaoh has said, told Moses, get out from here. I don't want to ever see you again. And Moses says, that's right. You're never going to see me again. And then this, the death of the firstborn is announced in Exodus chapter 11. So Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 says, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people a favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. If you remember that that poem I brought the other couple Sundays ago by that Egyptian guy, the Egyptian seer or sage. Um, there is a phrase in there where it talks about how things are worse than they've ever been before and all of that. And it reminds me of this, where, where, Mo, where the Lord is telling Moses, it's, it's going to be worse than it's ever been again. Not, not after, not before. This is the worst it's ever been in Egypt. Uh, so verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So this was the announcement of the death of the firstborn. And then if we go over to Exodus chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 29, and we'll read two verses here. It says, It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And so this is, the, this is what's happening in Egypt. The firstborn are being taken. Now, 
in most cultures and societies, the firstborn son takes on the, the part of his father. So whether it's the double inheritance that was in the Levitical law, whether it's the right to the, pre, to the uh, kingdom, to the crown that we often see, um, in a few places, like with the Amish, the way I grew up, it was the youngest child who usually got the, inherited the home place. But the reason for that was they would be working with their parents, and as their parents were getting older, the youngest child, maybe you know, there's 10 or 11 children, the youngest child would finally get married, and so that couple would often stay on the old home place and take over the farm while dad and mom are still alive, and then they would, they would build a little house next to the big house, and the young couple would start out in the little house, and then as they started having children, they would switch houses at some point. And, uh, and then grandpa and grandma would live in the little house, and the n- new family would be taking over. This is what my Uncle Henry is doing. He's the youngest on my dad's side of the family. And so he gets the, he gets the inheritance. Now, this, this can seem unfair in some ways, but when you understand what the inheritance is, sometimes it's, um, like in the case of my Uncle Henry, it's a, you, you, he got an old rundown farm. Um, with existing debts and bills and other things already built in, he didn't get to have a fresh start like his siblings. Now, it can be a real blessing, but it's just, so it's, a, it's an interesting cultural thing. Anyhow, here we have the firstborn, and there's something about the firstborn in every society. There's just something about it. Just the fact that it's first is, is, is huge. And so what we see here happening, build, being built into the children of Israel, we'll pick up over in Exodus 13. And we're going to read verses 1 through 2, and then go, jump down to 11 and six, to 16. So in Exodus chapter 13, in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And so then he talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we hop down to verse 11, and it says, It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him by strength of hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so at this moment... The Lord is instructing Moses to consecrate the firstborn. And so something special is happening that is going to mark the Jewish culture uh, until this day, where there is something special about the firstborn. Now, what we see in going forward is that um, right at the same time that we're having this discussion about the firstborn sons, we're also instigating, I- instituting a new feast, the, the, fe- the Feast of Firstfruits is happening about the same time as this. And so if we go over and we look at, to understand more what the, the first fruits is, it's in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, 9 to 14. So Leviticus 
23, starting in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hymn. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And so then after the, the Feast of the first fruits, then you, you start the countdown for the Feast of Weeks, which um, then ends with the day of Pentecost in our calendar. And so we have this idea of the first fruits, and if we look through the Levitical law, I'm not, there, there's a lot more here than what I'm reading today. I'm just touching on a few spots here. We have the something with the firstborn, something with the first fruits. So something about the first thing. And so I think about this, and the way I apply it to my own life is that there is a, a sense in which there's two perspectives that we can have as we look at this. One is that the first of something that I receive, so like when you plant a seed in the ground and you grow something, like when we had our first strawberry, it was cause for celebration. And so when you, the very first thing you plant, when it finally bears fruit, um, like I was, we were chatting with some friends the other night and they he said that they've waited 13 years for the first fruit from their, from their apple tree or their, just a tree in general because they've planted so many of them and they didn't actually bring forth fruit. And so finally they've got one that this year is bringing forth fruit. So this tree is not 13 years old. I think it's more like five or something years old, but it just took a long time and they finally got some apples. And so I think about the, what, what there, there's several pieces to this. When we get that first fruit, yes, it's exciting because we had to work toward it, but it is also is a promise of more to come. So when we bring the first thing, it's not that we're saying, and, and, and this, this sounds a little ridiculous, but like, it's not that we're saying, okay, this is all I've got, so here, Lord, you can have this. It's the first thing. Now, in some cases, it's the best, you know, you might say, well, the first is the best, but most of the time, it's just the same. It's the first comes, it's the same of what is to come. There's going to be more coming. Potentially, you know, if you, you pick your first strawberry, uh, maybe in a couple of weeks, you'll have one that's actually bigger. You'll have the biggest strawberry. So, in talking about first things, the firstborn, the first fruits, um, when I'm reading here in Scripture, most of the time, the firstborn is put into one word, and I titled my message today, Firstborn, as two words, because I'm wanting to focus in on this first concept, the, 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 the um, first fruits, the firstborn, and how we look at this. So interestingly enough, if you look over Numbers 3, 5 to 13, something happened with the firstborn. So it, in the beginning, the firstborn were going to be coming, and they were taking the place, uh, and they were going to be helping offer up for the rest of, so this was an appointment to uh, be separated, consecrated as the priests. But in, in um, Numbers 3, there is a shift that's happening. 
Numbers 3, um, 5 to 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. Also they shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting and to the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among, of the from among the children of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. Because all the firstborn are mine, on, that, on the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, they shall be mine, I am the Lord. So here is a, the, the firstborn belongs to the Lord. But, God is saying, I'm going to actually substitute the Levites for the firstborn. And you can go back and see what actually happened with the Levites and the sons of Aaron and what was leading up to this moment. But the, the, the point for our message today is simply that the firstborn has been set, a, set apart. It has been consecrated. It belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord says, but I'm going to substitute the Levites for the firstborn. And so now I'm going to jump all the way to the New Testament, go to Romans 8. Romans 8, 23 to 30. Romans 8, well, actually, let's read verse 28 first. So Romans 8, 28. It says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he, predest whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this is a, is a very fascinating moment here because Paul is pointing to Jesus, saying he is the firstborn among many brethren. So we just, when we talk about firstborn, we know he's the first and there's many coming. So Jesus is the firstborn. He is the, also if you look, he is the first fruits. Um, uh, and he is at that offering. And what you notice with the feast of first fruits, what you notice with the, the firstborn being consecrated is that when it was a, a firstborn lamb or any of the clean animals, you brought that firstborn and they would actually offer it on the altar. They would actually slaughter it. But if it was, say, a donkey or something else that was an unclean animal, they were not supposed to offer that on the altar. So you would come and you'd bring a lamb and you would actually offer it on the altar in the stead of the, the firstborn donkey. And in that one case, it said, if you don't want to do that, then you just kill the unclean animal. That's what it, that's what it said. But in the case of the firstborn son, you had to bring the offering and offer for your firstborn son. When God took the consecration uh, of the Levites and said, I'm going to use them for their priesthood instead of the firstborn, he still didn't remove the necessity for the children of Israel to bring the offering for their firstborn son. That was still there. And so they continued with that. But now they also had a whole method by which when a priest was ready to enter into service, he would come and he would go through an entire process of being prepared, being prepared, 
anointed, being consecrated, being dedicated, set apart, and then he could serve in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so when you read through some of what was happening with that dedication and that set apartness, you realize that when God is setting something in place like that, he's not doing it because of the very, you know, for instance, when they took the oil and they anointed Aaron and it says it flowed down on his beard, it wasn't that God was going, okay, you know what my very favorite thing in the world is? It's oil. Let's put oil on these guys. That wasn't it. He was showing a picture, an image, something that he's saying, this is a picture of something else. And so there was something else that was being poured out on Aaron and on the other priests, and it was the Spirit of God. But he's showing it by saying, let's, let's make a picture here. We're going to wash Aaron. We're going to actually anoint him with blood on his ear and his thumb and his big toe. We're going to do all of this. And then we're going to pour oil on his head. We're going to do all of these things. And each of these things is a picture of something that is happening spiritually. And so we still do those things today. We have the outward baptism where we picture buried with Christ, raised in newness of life. We, sh- we have that. And in the church, we still do these. But we also have that, that reality that not only am I being buried in the water and raised with, you know, in newness of life, I'm actually, that's actually happening. I am made a new creature in Christ. And so I'm trying to stay on my trail that I had written down in my notes. Like I, uh, there's a lot to talk about with the first fruits and the firstborn and, and, all, and the priesthood and all of this. And this morning when I came back down and reviewed my notes. I said, you know what? Maybe there's more here than I need to share. So I got a green highlighter. I was like, I'm going to highlight just the spots that I really want to keep for today. And so this happened. Like my whole paper, it, it all turned green. <laughs> so, so I had to go, okay, okay, that's, that's good. So, so where we are right now in the account is we, we have the firstborn sons, and they have a somebody, the Levites, have been substituted for them for the priesthood. When it comes to the firstborn offering for the animal, the, un- the clean animal is, is offered. The firstborn itself is offered. But when it comes to the firstborn of people, there's a substitutional sacrifice made in the place of not to sacrifice a human child, but to sacrifice a lamb in its place. And so there's a substitution that's happening. And so then we come to Jesus, and he is called the firstborn among many sons. What's fascinating about this is he himself is the one being offered. He is being offered. He was offered on the cross. And so we see that picture there. So he is the firstborn among many brethren. And instead of bringing in, um, like in the case with Isaac, instead of bringing in a ram or something else, he took the hit. But then he became the substitutionary sacrifice for all of us. And so in today's day and age, when my firstborn was was born, I didn't go down and offer a lamb. But I did pray over him, dedicate him to the Lord, ask for Christ to cover, you know, and, and now does, does that mean that he was automatically um, holy? Well, we read Psalm 139, a part of it today, and if you keep reading there, you notice that the Lord knows and he's working out the inner workings of a, of a human being. So there's something sacred about each of us just because we're made in the image of God. But we take something sacred as our firstborn children or, and we, we dedicate them to the Lord, but then they also 
Well, we expect that they still have to follow the Lord for themselves. And so we pray for our children. But when my second born came, did I go, oh, well, this one doesn't belong to the Lord? No, actually, I prayed just as much over my second born as I did my first born and on down the line until little baby Corey comes here. And like, she's a delight to my soul and I love interacting with her, but I pray for her. And I, as much as I am able to set her apart and dedicate her to the Lord. And in each of these, I am recognizing that Christ has paid the price. He is the one who has, he is the substitute. And so what is fascinating is in the Levitical plan or the pre-Levitical plan, the firstborn plan, we're going to have priests from the firstborn of every family. So you would have every family represented at the tabernacle, at the temple. But then it went to, actually we're going to do the Levites because not all, the pre, not all of the, the uh, instead of doing the firstborn. And, and I don't know, here's the thing about this because we just read some verses where it talks about predestination and foreknowledge and all this other stuff in Romans. But what's fascinating to me is like, it looks like God said, you know what, on second thought, let's choose the Levites instead of the firstborn. But he's doing a substitutionary thing. Now, God does this kind of stuff to, make, to show us pictures and images, but he's also working with people who have their own will and they're doing stuff. And so I see God interacting with people, setting something up. But now we come to us. And in Christ, we literally say, not our firstborn of our family, not the first person to get saved in our family, but every single one of us is part of the priesthood of all believers. So we have the firstborn that was going to be, was set apart to be a priest. Levites actually took over that. Then we come to Christ. He's the firstborn among many sons. And he died for us. And he brings all of those who surrender to him and believe in him to actually, we are part of the priesthood of all believers. And again, that doesn't mean that we're actually having to do all the work of the temple, but we're doing something because we're doing the work of the kingdom. So that's where I'm going with this right now, is what is this that we're being brought to? And if you go back in Romans 8 to, oh, so verse 23, well, so in verse 22 it says, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so the, the setting that Paul is putting in place here is that we have all of creation created by God for a purpose and a reason, and then we have us, mankind, who when you look at the way he created everything, it seems that he created everything and got everything ready for us and then placed us in the middle of the garden, that everything was for us. He gives us more than he gave anyone else as far as responsibility, opportunity, and, 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 and jurisdiction goes. He gave us dominion of the world, and then we take that and we give it to the enemy of God, to, the, to the, the father of lies, to Satan. And as a result of our sin, all the rest of creation is suffering. But they didn't choose that. And so they, it's the creation is eagerly awaiting, but here we are. We're the only ones, humankind, that can actually do something about what we've done because we've sold ourselves under Satan. Well, we actually find out we cannot deliver ourselves. We need a savior. Christ comes he is that substitutionary offering for us. He resets us to where we're again, now in a broken world, 
but now we're able to hear the voice of God, walk with God, and actually do what God has called us to do. So he's called us to do something. And it's in this, as the whole creation is groaning and laboring with birth pangs together until now, then we start in verse 23, Romans 8, 23, it says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And so now here's another first fruits mentioned, the first fruits of the Spirit. So we have Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren, then we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves have something. So when we come to Christ, and this has caused so much discussion amongst the churches and, and between theologians and different people, because when we come to Christ, we receive Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of Christ made new in us. Our old man, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have the newborn Spirit of God re basically quickening us. We have actually, we are, we are no longer what we used to be. We're something new and different and whole. And so this is powerful. But now it says that even we ourselves are groaning. We're still waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And so when we look at this phrase, we all agree that there is a final redemption when the last enemy is conquered, when death is conquered, when we, or, or in our case, we have two options the way we see it. We will either die and go to Christ or he will come to us before we die. And so one of these two things is going to happen. And at that time, we see the final enemy being destroyed and we are now entered into eternity. And finally, we have the full fruition of what Christ purchased. The discussion comes into what is in between the time I got saved and got that first fruits of the Spirit until that day when I stand before him face to face. And it's this in-between time where I want to look at and talk about. Because when we look at the Old Testament, we see the firstborn, we see the first fruits, we see the tithe, we see all of these things introduced. They're all having to do with our activity while we're here on earth. They all have to do with how we are interacting with our crops, with the work of our hands, with our families, with our whatever we have. It's all being talked about here. And so the first fruit is a promise that there is more to come. So when we first experienced the Holy Spirit, that is a promise that there is more to come. And the first may only be a very small portion, but it, like, you know, if you go get your very first red, red ripe strawberry off the plant, it is fully a strawberry, but it's only one. It's the first one. And there's more to come. There's much more to come. Eventually, you might have enough strawberry that you can chop it all up and pour it over bluebell ice cream and have a really good dessert, right? So there's more to come. And so the question is, are we living our lives in the expectancy of the more that is to come? And so let me rephrase it like this and see if I can say this. Um, so for instance, if you're thinking about tithing and you say, well, I'm going to take the first 10% of what I get and then I'm going to give that to the Lord, and then the rest is mine. So I have children. I'm going to take my firstborn, dedicate him to the Lord, and the rest are mine. I can do what I want with them. How am I looking at first fruits? Because the verse we read at the very beginning said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth belongs to the Lord. I'm in the earth, therefore I am his, um, and now I'm not only his by 
creation rights, but he purchased me through the blood of Jesus. And now I have also spoken words of allegiance to him as my king. And I've said, you are mine. I am yours. You know, the whole, the, 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 the Lord is mine and I'm his, his banner over us, his love, that, that, that concept. Well, in our relationship with God, we, this, is, this is part of what we're doing. We're actually, we are becoming his with not just because of creation rights, not just because Christ died for us, but because as we walk with him, we have spoken words, we have been consecrated to him, we have separated ourselves to him. And so when I am at work, is only the first 10% that I'm earning, is that the only time I'm serving the Lord? And then the rest of the time it's for me? Or is all of it his? And so, you know, we have ministries today who are working with, with, with the, the working class going, hey, listen, you have a sacred honor and a sacred right that you're doing. When you're working with your hands, this is, brings honor and glory to the Lord. And it's right. It's true. It does. The work of our hands, the words of our mouth, all of these things for a believer, they all belong to the Lord. So I'm, I'm now trying to finish a thought I opened up a minute ago. Um, I sometimes leave thoughts unfinished, and I don't realize it until I'm listening back to it when I'm getting it ready to upload it, and I'm like, oh, I never finished that thought. Um, and so I'm going to try to finish this thought now. So we either are going, ah, Lord, this is yours. Now bug off and stay out of my life. Or we're going, Lord, all of this is yours, and I am so grateful, so here, I'm going to dedicate this piece specifically to you because you have given me all of these things and it is such a privilege and it's such an awesome thing that I get to participate with you in what you're doing. So there's two approaches to this. And I think in the church today, we sometimes have minimized the idea of first fruits, of the first things, to just kind of being like, oh yeah, 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 put that over there. So what that does to us is it makes us say, oh, Jesus is the first fruits, oh yeah, 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 well, he took care of everything, I have to do nothing. Because first fruits, he already took care of it. And so we might not actually say it in those words, but we do it with our actions. And so when I think about how I approach all of this, first is a promise of more to come. And with the giving of the first, it doesn't mean that I can then, the rest is just mine, but it is a demonstration that it actually all belongs to the Lord. And so the way I dedicate it, the way I consecrate it, and so we do different things. Like with our money, we often do a tithe where we give it to someone who is in need or we give it to the church or we give it to ministries, but we do something with it as a way to demonstrate that, Lord, this is all yours and I am illustrating that by giving this much. And that's what we do. And so if we're doing that out of compulsion, if we're doing that because I need God to just let me go and I just, you know, I just need him to be kind to me, well, that's a, that's a problem. We need to be able to see this from a different perspective. So what I wanted for us to do today is that um, this idea of first fruits leads us to think in terms of farming or planting or growing something. So if you look over in Isaiah chapter 5, it's Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses. Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse, verse 1. 
Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I also will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, for behold, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And so we have a picture here of God with a vineyard. And he says, it's Judah, it's Israel. And I expected good fruit. But what did I get? Wild fruit. And so in thinking in terms of first fruits, he plants a vineyard, he comes looking for his good grapes, and he gets wild grapes. And I don't know if you've ever eaten like a muscadine or a Mustang wild grape, and you're thinking maybe you're getting a good, sweet, store-bought grape or something, you know, from California or someplace, and you bite into that thing, and it is bitter. It has a huge blob of seeds in the middle of it. And you can turn it into jelly, you can turn it into wine, but just to eat it, it's, it's not that great. You have to actually, if you want grapes that are just good for eating, table grapes, you have to cultivate those and very carefully, basically what we would say, you know, breeding them toward the right, um, you have to culture them until they're the right grape that is good to eat for the table. And so there are some very sweet grapes in the world. Um, when we were in Italy and Greece, we got to taste quite a few really good grapes. Um, and grapes is one of those things that if I talk to you about how good they taste and everything, like your mouth starts watering a bit and you start really wanting them. Well, we were in a tour bus of people in Sicily, and the tour guide started talking about how in this region with the volcanic ashes and stuff, they can make the best, the sweetest, the most delicious grapes that have ever existed. And so pretty soon, the whole bus is sitting there going, I just want to eat some grapes. And we came up to a little town, and, and someone raised their hand and said, is there any place around here we could buy some of these grapes? So they stopped, and we, like, I don't know, 45, 50 Americans pile off this bus into this little market, and we all try to buy grapes. <laughs> it made us late for what we were supposed to be doing. But when you're expecting good grapes, and then you get bad grapes, that's what happened here to the Lord. Now, unless you think, oh, this is Old Testament, uh, let's go over to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, we have another situation with grapes. So this is Luke chapter 20, starting uh, verses 9 through 19. 9 through 19, starting in verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. 
Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, the, the, the Jews around them, the, when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so the, the absolute, in, in, the, in the Isaiah passage, you have the Lord coming to his vineyard and saying, you're bringing forth wild grapes, I'm just going to destroy you. And he destroys the vineyard. And here we have a vineyard that seems to be bringing forth good fruit. But they're like, we're not giving this fruit to the owner. No, sir, we're going to keep this for ourselves. We're going to kill the heir so we can have it. Seems to be bringing forth good fruit. And so what does he do? He removes those who are in charge of the vineyard and says, no, I'm going to put someone else here who will actually give it where it belongs. will actually do the right thing with the fruit. These are fascinating things to think about when we think about in terms of the work of our own hands, our own success in whatever field we're in, and what we're actually accomplishing and doing, and, and thinking, well, is this good fruit? And are we good stewards of this? Are we doing it as unto the Lord? And are we giving him you know, his first fruits with it, whatever that means? And that's what I want to talk about. What does that mean? Because over in John chapter 15, there is some more uh, very familiar passage, but we have this John 15, uh, verses 1 through 11, We're talking about vineyards. Jesus is speaking, John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And so with a, with a concept of fullness of joy that Christ wants us to have, and then if you think about the substitution. So you have God speaking to Israel and Judah going, okay, I planted a vineyard and look what I got, wild grapes. I'm going to tear this down and start over. And then he sends Christ and Christ says, I am the vine. 
And so suddenly we have a new vine. We have us belonging to that vine. This vine is now bearing fruit through us as we abide in him. And so if we go all the way back to the first fruits and the firstborn and this concept of first somehow being consecrated, special, and set apart to God, he takes this and he says, look, I'm just going to show you all the way through. There's so many times when what we see as first, and so it, take it as of the, the, the first importance, the first value, the first um, actually accomplishing something. And we see this in an Egyptian way from the perspective of the world, all of our firstborn sons, you know, here's the firstborn son of Pharaoh who is being prepared for the throne. Well, now he dies. And then a few days later, you have Pharaoh dying and Egypt is left without a Pharaoh. And it, they're just, they cycle into chaos. And so you have that example, and then you come through and you think about all the way that first fruits, firstborn, all of this stuff is supposed to apply to us in a spiritual sense. What are we looking at it? Well, if you've ever experienced something that you thought of was of utmost importance, and you've put it up here, and you've been hanging on to it, and suddenly whatever, the brokenness of the world or your own foolishness, or sometimes it seems the very hand of God, removes this and destroys it, and you're left with nothing, at that point, we have a, an option. Do we go like Pharaoh and say, well, I'm going to go destroy whatever, and this is bitterness. This is when we go with unforgiveness and bitterness and we are going to win at all costs. Or do we submit to God? And so these are pictures every step of this way with the firstborn of Pharaoh, with the firstborn of the children of Israel, with Aaron and his sons and the Levites and the way they're being consecrated, with the first fruit of their work of their hands, when we see them finally getting over to Canaan and having the Passover and they're bringing the first fruit and the first offerings, What's fascinating about that is on the day that they celebrated this feast of first fruits, that was the last day they got manna because they ate the produce of the land and then they were finished with the manna. And so there's times when God gives us very special grace for a special season. And then suddenly we walk out of that and we don't need that special grace anymore because now he's giving us fruit, something else, something different. And so all of these I'm wanting to apply to us in some spiritual sense and say, how do I apply this to my life? So for me, especially since we've been married and even before, uh, the way I interact with money has turned out to really be revealing of my heart and how it is with God. The way I interact with work has turned out to be very revealing of my heart and my interaction with God. So almost everything that I do from, a, you know, from how I get up in the morning and what I do with the first couple hours of my day to how I work, to what I do with my money, to what I do with my spare time, all of these things turn out to actually show me an image of myself and how I'm interacting with God. And so not to bring condemnation, but to bring a question of, I have experienced the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in my life. The first baptism, if you will. But it all, everything, the, the, the spiritual riches in heavenly places belongs to us because we are heirs and children because 
we're heirs and children to God, and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so there is something more, no matter how much of God you've experienced, no matter how much of success you've experienced, no matter how much of wisdom and understanding you've experienced, no matter how much you are able to say, well, I can see the heart of God for these people, no matter how much you've heard from God, as long as you're on earth, you can always look back and say, well, those were the first fruits. There is something more. And so when I dedicate all of my, the work of my hands to the Lord, that is different, and we, we understand this, that's different than if I just take the, that first 10% and say, here you go, Lord, bug off. That's quite a difference in my heart. Because if I'm showing up day after day and doing the work that God has given me to do and saying, thank you, Lord, for letting me participate with you here on earth, it changes my heart. It changes my attitude. I remember when I was, and I've shared this before, like there was a season in my life where I kept being like, Lord, just provide for me. I don't want to work. I just want to serve you. And he would do unique things. Like the one trip to Mexico that I bring up frequently is the, you know, I needed this much for my expenses, and then I wanted something to leave as a gift because we were helping build a building or something for a church down there. And so I let people know, my friends know, that I was going to go to Mexico, and there were gifts given to me for this trip to Mexico that totaled that amount. And so I was able to go to Mexico and do everything I needed to do down there and came back home. But what I didn't get was the Lord didn't include my monthly mortgage. He didn't include my phone bill. He didn't include all the other bills I had every month. He only included the trip to Mexico, and he provided for that. And I said, Lord, you can obviously, you know, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Like, what's keeping you from providing for all of this? And basically, all he had to do was say, well, look at your calendar. How many days of free time do you have this month that you could be working? And so I was out digging fence posts and building a fence in South Texas to earn the money to pay for my mortgage and everything else. And I was complaining to God because I didn't like it. I, I preferred that he just gave everything to me. My heart wasn't right about how I was serving God. I was not willing to see it as serving the Lord to be digging the fence post, to be working whatever jobs I could to do roofing or, or remodeling or whatever was available. I wasn't wanting to see that as part of the sacred offering that comes to God. Because in the same way that God started with the children of Israel and said, here, I'm going to use the firstborn and they will be priests to me. Oh, never mind, I'm going to substitute the Levites. And then he comes to us and he's not saying firstborn only. He's saying all of you in my kingdom are priests. You're part of the priesthood. You're all serving me. You're all bringing that offering that sweet-smelling sacrifice to me. Everything that you're doing, it's all for me because the earth is the Lord's, the fullness of it. It all belongs to the Lord. And so when we think of consecrating a part of our life or serving him in one area or bringing first fruits or tithing or all of these things, it is healthy to stop and say, am I looking at this only as a way to sort of appease God? Because if I'm doing it that way, I'm pretty much like the idol worshipers and the animistic folks where I'm going, that God over there gets angry and he just kind of lashes out at random times and we don't know when he's going to blow up again, so let's take him an offering. That's, that's not our heart toward God. That's not the heart of someone who's abiding in Christ, the vine. 
we need to be able to rejoice and say, we serve a good God who gives good gifts to his children. And he has given me this gift. He's given me this opportunity to do this. He's given me an opportunity to serve here. And so then I do it with joy and rejoicing. Is it sometimes hard? Yes. Is it sometimes excruciating? Yes. Do you ever feel like you were abandoned in the field and you're the last guy out there hoeing weeds or something and everyone else is left and is eating watermelon in the shade? Yeah, you might feel that way sometimes. But is it for the Lord? Yes. And is that good? Yes. And when you serve the Lord, does he, as it says in Psalm 23, does he lead you in green pastures? Does he take you through different seasons? Yeah, he does. So sometimes I am the one sitting underneath the tree eating the watermelon. And this is the case of Mary and Martha. We often beat up Martha and say, Martha, you should have come in here and sat down with Mary. No, actually, that was not the message there, I don't believe. I think Mary was supposed to sit at the feet of Jesus. That was her part to do. Martha was supposed to keep serving in the kitchen with joy instead of trying to make someone else do her part. That was her part. That was the good part. She got to serve Jesus. Would you like to make food that the king of the universe eats and says, that was good? So when, when he says, Mary has chosen that good part and it won't be taken away from her, what I see in this account is simply this. Jesus gives each of us something to do in the kingdom. If I look at your part and say, can I, Lord, why do I have to do this? I want to do that. I'm outside of where I need to be. If I look at you and say, hey, you, get over here and do what I'm doing, I'm also outside of where I'm supposed to be. I am supposed to be rejoicing in the work that God has given me to do. And in the same way that the first fruits bring delight to the Lord, now the, 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 the firstborn son becoming priest, we're all priests, that's that same concept, it all becomes first fruits. It all becomes an offering. It all is being presented to the Lord. So the priest would take that sheaf and wave it before the Lord. And we think of Jesus being raised up, sort of being waved before the Lord, right? But then we think of everything that we do, our entire work, our entire life, all of our relationships, and we're presenting it to the Lord, saying, Lord, unto you. This is for you, Lord. And that's how we are responding. And so when we think of first fruits, it is fascinating to study exactly what happened in the Levitical law and exactly what happened and how Christ fulfilled some of these things. But it is awesome to think of the fact that the first, as in of first importance, of first things, because Christ, who the Alpha and the Omega, the Alpha, that's first, the beginning, the end, he has marked us with himself. We belong to the first and the last, but we belong to him. We are part of the first things in a spiritual sense. And so this perspective, instead of saying, okay, Lord, here's yours, here's mine, I'm saying, Lord, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you for letting me participate with you. And so now I can come and I can either say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take some of this and put it over here. We pray about these things. You know, where do we send money? What do we do? But it's not a, it's not a, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. It's, wow, Lord, I get to do this with you. And then we get to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to 
participate with what's happening around me. And so maybe, like for myself, there's a lot of things that it's very, it's easy to set things in place. For instance, I plan I'm going to be here on Sundays, right? And this was before I was a pastor too. If something else came up that was also unto the Lord, I went and did that instead. But if I didn't have anything else, I just planned on being here. It was easier to put it on my calendar and just be here. Um, I did the same thing with tithing. I was like, it's easier just say, I'm going to do 10%. And that way I took care of it. Well, then there'd be those times when I'd be at the gas station and, and someone needed something, or I would see a need, um, you know, with Bible translations or something else. And I'd be, oh, I'd love to give to that. And so then you find ways to give also to that. And so it, but it provided a, sort of a bedrock. And so there's certain parts of our life that we come to Christ and we say, because it all belongs to you, I am going to do these things. These are my disciplines that I'm building in. And then as we're walking with the Lord, we learn to hear his heart and his voice. And there's times when he says, I want you to go do this. And we're like, yes, Lord. And sometimes it's more like, yes, Lord. Like, really? Over there? Okay. And so we, we have to learn to hear from the Lord. But we belong to him. We're abiding in him. If we can hear his commands, do his commands, that is what he wants us to do, to abide in him, that the Father may be glorified and that we might bear much fruit. And so I don't want the only fruit in my life to be the very first fruit when I first surrendered to Christ, but I want to experience that over and over and over again, where my whole life is surrendered to him, and it's all first fruits. It's all his. And this is my prayer for us as a fellowship, that when we look at how we interact with other people in the community, when we look at how we interact with our families, when we interact with each other, that we can do it in a way that is not trying to just appease God or just to do what is my minimum over here, but that we approach it as saying, I am all in. I'm 100% his. Christ was my substitutionary first fruit, uh, firstborn sacrifice, but I am consecrated, set apart for him. And so it's yours, Lord. What do you want me to do? And in that, as we're abiding in him, we will walk in joy with each other, but we won't be trying to make sure that you're paying your first fruit correctly. Because if, if mine is all first fruit and if yours is all first fruit and we get to interact together, that's joy. If, however, I've compartmentalized my life and I say, well, this is my first fruit. Um, are you giving your first fruit over there? And I'm, I'm looking. There, there's so many ways that we get distracted by these, what we would call percentages and numbers and, and, and measurements because first means something. And so it's like when, we, when, we're, doing, when we're on a team and we're like, so-and-so is not giving their best. But when we are giving our best, Sometimes we don't even notice what the other people are doing, but we can inspire each other. And so I, I, I want to encourage us as a fellowship to think of all of our life as his. And so the fact is that when we're meeting together on a Sunday morning, the fact that we're eating together um, for, increases the odds a little bit, but this is not 10% of our time. And so if you're purely trying to say, I'm going to give 10% of my time to the Lord by going to church, um, then you'd have to go to church a little bit more to try to make that happen. But that's not really what God wants. He wants, and this is what we want to encourage each other with, is when we're out there, 
when we're interacting with our neighbors, when we're at the store, when we're at the coffee shop, when we're at the mechanic's place, no matter what we're doing, however we're interacting with the world, that is part of our time that we're giving unto the Lord because all of it belongs to him. Now, what is beautiful about this is when I first thought about this, I thought, you know what, if I ever, if I did that, if I was like, took a John Wesley approach and I was reading his journal before he really found the inner witness, um, if, you, if, you, if you look at that, you're like, that sounds tiring. It sounds fatiguing. It sounds hard to be so disciplined, to get up early enough and to do all of these things. But when you understand that there is a rest in Christ where I'm ceasing from my own works and I'm doing his work, there's joy in that and it's different. And so I'm not saying that you should fill your calendar and that we should compete how busy our calendars are. Although sometimes I think you should see my calendar, but, but then I see someone else's calendar. I'm like, oh, okay. There's, there's more disciplined, more busy people than me. Okay. Um, there's always someone who's out working you somewhere. So it's not about that though. The point is what has Christ given you to do? And that's 100% what I want to be doing. I feel a little bit like this is a bit of rambling with all the firstborn and, and the direction we went with this, first fruits. But there's, a, there, there's the connection here. You see the application I'm making. And there's plenty of room to now still study the firstborn on your own and, the, and what exactly all is here. And I think that's good. And so I want to leave it with that today and just say, let's make sure that as his people, that we're giving, we're just his and that we understand and we delight in the fact that the earth is the Lord's, the fullness of it, and it's all his, and we're working, we are in his kingdom for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have been merciful to us, that you have been kind in that Christ's death was a substitutionary atonement for each of us, that we are then able, because of what Christ has done, to offer our entire life to you and to allow you to use that however you want. And I pray, Father, that you would give us that joy that comes from being, a, from abiding in you. You said you told us these things so that we could have our fullness of joy. We want that, Lord. So I pray for each of us that as we look at our own weeks and our schedules and the days that we have, that we would be able to rest in you and to see that it all is yours. And Father, if there are things in our little part of the vineyard that are not the way you would have them to be, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the humility to repent and to turn to you and to allow you, as we abide in you, to allow you to make those changes that are necessary. Because you are such a gracious God. And I'm so grateful for that. But you're also the all-consuming fire and there's nothing hidden from you, Lord. And I'm thankful for that too, as much as it makes me uncomfortable at times. And so we submit ourselves to you. We thank you for Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren. And we come to you as the assembly of the firstborn, Lord. We belong to you and we are yours. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.